Amen. Please be seated. We are going to be in Mark chapter 10 today, verses 32 to 52, so I encourage you to join me there. And as you are finding your place in your Bible, I want to direct your attention over here to the birthday girl. Marjorie, that's you, the birthday girl. You turned 100 on Tuesday. Congratulations. We love having you with us. I understand there was a big family shindig yesterday. I hope that was filled with joy, but happy birthday to you. It's so good to have you here. Okay, we are in the Gospel of Mark. We are picking up the Gospel story right where Kyle left off last week with a couple of interesting requests brought to Jesus. Our verses 32 to 52 are kind of lengthy, and so I'm going to break them up. And read them as we make our way through the sermon today. But as we begin, let me begin in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the opportunity to be together in this space. We are among family, brothers and sisters in Christ. We acknowledge your presence here with us. And we are so thankful that you invite us to worship you. We're thankful, too, for the gift of Scripture. In these next few minutes, as we look into these verses, I pray that you would give every single one of us Eyes to see exactly what you want us to see. Hearts that are soft and ready to receive whatever you choose to reveal. And conviction that is strong so we can apply what we see and understand to the way we live every single day. I pray all of these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's begin with another death prediction in verses 32 to 34 of Mark chapter 10. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later... He will rise. It's an interesting picture as they travel along on their way to Jerusalem. Jesus is leading the way. And we're told that some, the disciples, were astonished, amazed. These are the kinds of words that Mark keeps giving us as people listen to Jesus teach and as they experience his miracles at work. But Mark tells us this time others were afraid. The others who were in that crowd following along were afraid. Now obviously not the kind of fear that makes you run away because they're following after Jesus, but there's just something about the power of Jesus that keeps people coming back, wondering what he will do next. Right then, Jesus pulls his 12 disciples aside and announces for the third time what is going to happen to him. He'll be delivered to the religious authorities. He'll be condemned to death, handed over to the Gentiles, and he's much more specific this time, to be mocked, to be spit upon, to be flogged, to be killed. This time when Jesus makes his announcement, notice no one opposes him. And we might like to think, well, that's because they're finally hearing him. They're finally understanding what Jesus is saying. Things are going to go a little bit differently than they had originally hoped. But it's probably just because they know what happened last time when Peter opposed Jesus. No one wants to go down that road again. And once again, this time, no one seems to notice the most important part. Three days later, he will rise. Next comes a special request in verses 35 to 45. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, 
Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. James and John were disciples of Jesus, and they also happened to be brothers, and maybe that's when they concocted this idea while they were walking along. Let's find Jesus when the other ten aren't around, and we're going to make a special request of Jesus. Maybe that's how the idea started. But they preface their request with an amazing statement. They say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Extra points for confidence, right? I mean, coming to Jesus and saying, hey, we have a proposition. Do whatever we tell you to do. And if that wasn't enough, they go into their proposition. Let one of us sit at your right, the other at your left in glory. Are they getting it? I mean, I want to grab onto this again and say, okay, they're finally seeing it. What they mean is when you enter into Jerusalem and when you are eventually crucified and then resurrected, one of us at your right, one of us at your left. But no, they don't seem to be getting it. They mean his throne of power in Jerusalem. They're still stuck on the old program. They're still thinking that as long as they stick closely to Jesus, when he defeats everyone in Jerusalem, they want to be there. They want to be sitting right next to him, enjoying that power and prestige right alongside him. Jesus says to them, you have no idea what you're talking about. You have no idea what you're asking for. He then begins to speak of a cup and of baptism. What's this all about? Well, the cup in Scripture signifies God's wrath. It's spoken of in the book of Jeremiah, and Jesus actually prays about this cup in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion. And baptism in Scripture represents death, just in the same way that we identify with Jesus' death in our own baptisms. Jesus is once again helping them to understand what's in store for him so that they can prepare themselves for what will be required of them. In verse 40, Jesus says, these places, the ones on his right and left, these places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. Theologian N.T. Wright suggests that Jesus, in this moment, ironically, is referring to the crosses on either side of him when he's eventually crucified. He will not have a throne in Jerusalem. There will be a cross. But when Jesus is hoisted up upon that cross, he is exalted as he does what he came to do, and on his right and his left will be two that are also hanging on crosses. There's another request that comes in verses 46 to 52, and I know that Mark lines these requests together so that we can see 
the incredible differences between them. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. An outcast cries out to Jesus for attention, for care, for compassion, for healing. And those around Bartimaeus shame him for that. They attempt to silence him, but that makes him cry all the more. And he, seemingly unlike James and John, who were already disciples of Jesus, seems to gather the heart of Jesus in greater fashion. He seems to know who Jesus is. He calls to him by specific name, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And when he finally stands before Jesus, he makes a simple request. I want to see. His understanding of who Jesus is and his humble request for healing constituted faith. And we're told it resulted in his healing. He immediately received his sight. And he immediately began following Jesus. What would you ask for? If you were standing before Jesus... What would you ask for? What would you request? You see, it's Jesus' question that links these two stories together. Look at verse 36 and verse 51. Verbatim, Jesus asked the same question of James and John and also of Bartimaeus. What do you want me to do for you? Both of them had asked Jesus for help, but Jesus wants specifics. And that's where the stories diverge. James and John seek power prestige, and glory. Bartimaeus simply wants to see again. And it's a request for himself, but it's a humble cry to feel the mercy of God at work in his life. And these stories diverge because James and John don't seem to know and understand Jesus. And if you don't know and understand Jesus, you don't know what to ask for. Even when Jesus stands right before you and says, what do you want me to do for you? If you don't know the heart of Jesus, the character of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the calling of Jesus, like James and John, you end up asking for something self-serving, something that has to do with power, something with the things of this world. Yet when you do understand the heart of Jesus, you know what he wants in your world, in the world, it changes what you ask for begs the question, do we know and understand Jesus, really? So that we can know what to ask for. So that we can know how to pray. 
so that we can know how to serve, we can know how to operate in this world? Do we know the heart of Jesus well enough to ask for the things that he wants in our lives and in this world? Imagine yourself in this story. And imagine Jesus as he turns and fixes his gaze on you and asks, what do you want me to do for you? How do you answer? This is a perfect Lenten text. This question, imagining together what we would say, what we would ask for, how we know Jesus and understand his heart, this is the perfect Lenten exercise. I'm so glad we're in this season and we have a chance to slow ourselves and consider these sorts of things. It's not just about the storyline and what's happening to Jesus. We're following that all the way to the cross. But it's also about this world that we live in. And it's about our own faith, our own following of Jesus. We're disciples of Jesus. We can be amazed at what Jesus has said and done. And yet when he turns to us and asks, what do you want me to do for you? How will we answer? How will we pray? How will we respond? I hope that our response comes from that intimate knowledge of Jesus' heart, of his grace and mercy at work, not just in these lives, but at work in the world, of truly wanting to ask him for the things that center on his calling and what true discipleship looks like, what bearing our cross looks like in this world. And so I encourage each of us this coming week, sit with this text, Sit with this question. Calm yourself and imagine Jesus turning to you. And when he asks that question, how do you respond? Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, as we follow along the lives of the disciples and are mixed with you and your mission, We're so thankful for disciples who ask the kinds of questions that we would. We're so thankful for mistakes that they made and earnestness that was misdirected at times because we do the same thing as we stumble along attempting to follow after you. We love to see your patience, but we also love to hear the power of your teaching. As you turn to us and ask, what do we want you to do? I pray that you'd fill our hearts with a sense of your own. I pray that in this Lenten season, as we sink into these texts, our devotions, our contemplative practices, that by your spirit, you will speak to us. Give us a sense of how to answer, of how to answer in such a way that your power is unleashed in our lives, and more than that, unleashed through us into this world. We desire to be a part of your mission We desire to align ourselves with you and your values. Fill us with the kind of love and the kind of insight that will enable each of us to do just that. I pray all of these things now, Jesus, in your name. Amen.